This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, I hope you enjoy some of our most downloaded episodes on self-storage. Finding deals is so hard, as you know, and as you've talked about on this show. And so we were not finding deals. And I was really concerned that multifamily was just too overheated. We couldn't find deals with a lot of value, a lot of meat left on the bone that hadn't been improved. And we heard a statistic, in fact, that 93% of apartment buildings over 50 units have already owned by professional multifamily operators or multi-asset operators, at least, who mostly have done all the value adds, or at least most of them. And put that together with the fact that prices in many cases that we were seeing from brokers were 10, 20, 30% above what made sense on our models. And so we discovered that self-storage, on the other hand, had 53,000 self-storage facilities in the US. That's about the same as the number of Subways, McDonald's, and Starbucks combined. But about 75% were run by independent operators, and two out of every three of those were run by mom and pops. Now, it doesn't mean they're poorly run, but it does typically mean that these mom and pops don't have the desire, the knowledge, or the resources to make significant upgrades, to increase income, and to ultimately raise value and the value of the equity. So we found this amazing opportunity in the arena of self-storage. And then we discovered something very similar in mobile home parks, an area that had been looked down, you know, people look down their nose at mobile home parks for years, but there are about 43,000 mobile home parks in the US, about 85 or 90% are owned by mom and pops. And like the self storage, they don't need to make increases in income because the cap rate compression has doubled roughly the value of their parks just in five or 10 years because of the popularity of this asset class. So they're sitting pretty being in many cases mediocre and happy doing it. Well, there's tremendous upside in deals like this. And so this is the the two areas we focused on mostly with our five Wellings funds. Tell us a little bit about the value in self-storage, you know, or finding that value and how can that uh, grow your wealth? How, how does that affect your business now versus multifamily? What, what did you see there outside of just you know a better opportunity for acquisitions? When I first heard about value adds and self-storage, I laughed. I think I really did because think about it. I mean, apartments have all these cool things. You know, you can put in a dog park, you can add paint and wallpaper and fake hardwood flooring and beautiful cabinets and uh, lighting, all these different things. But with self-storage, what are you talking about? I I mean, we're talking about four pieces of sheet metal, some rivets, a floor and a door. Where's the value in that? I mean, people sweep them out between tenants. It just didn't make sense to me, but I had no idea what I was talking about. And so a lot of my new book covers some of the value adds and self-storage. And we could take the rest of the show on this, but a couple quick examples are adding U-Haul. Now, if you add U-Haul, you are basically signing a contract with U-Haul, putting the trucks out front. There's no capital expense. And you can add my friend, Todd Allen, and you know, Todd, who owns Reliant, he has one self-storage facility that that makes 5,000 a month in commission from U-Haul. Others make one, two, 3,000, let's say. Let's say you can add 3,000 a month to your bottom line. Now, the value formula in commercial real estate, which works for multifamily, self-storage, and others, that the value is the net operating income divided by the cap rate. So if you can add 3,000 a month, month, that's 
thousand a year. My mom always told me I was good in math, Whitney. Anyway, thirty-six thousand dollars divided by a six percent cap rate is six hundred thousand dollars added to the bottom line. I mean, that's the bottom line value. But if you have a three million dollar facility that you just put a million dollars in equity and you borrowed two million on, you just added sixty percent to the value of your equity by signing a contract with U-Haul and putting trucks out front and getting. Of course, you have to do the work, but there's not much work. There's all kinds of other value adds, like adding a showroom, adding selling locks, boxes, tape, scissors, adding late fees, just raising rents, using a dynamic rental management system where you basically, you know, you might charge a different amount for a 10 by 10 that's in short supply in the marketplace, you know, than you would in a five by five that's oversupplied. You can actually move walls and change the size of units. You can add boat and RV parking. You can add climate controlled units. You can add a propane filling station, an ATM, a billboard, or a cell tower. There is so much you can do to add value. And we call it intrinsic value extraction. And here's what I mean by that. A great operator, someone like you in multifamily can look at a project and see opportunities that the previous owner didn't care about or missed entirely. And by adding those opportunities, they increase income and you can literally double or even triple the value of the equity over a few years. Another very interesting development in the self-storage space is technology. Where other asset classes have adopted technology rather quickly, self-storage has been one of those where it's taken quite a while for operators to adopt technology. So just recently, are we seeing manless facilities where there's a kiosk system you use to rent and purchase your unit to purchase renter's insurance and a lock. And then you can use an app on your phone to open the gate, open your individual unit. It's interesting, the technology that's breaking into the space. But again, it's, it's one of those things where self-storage is, is a very hands-off type of business that I think a lot of operators have been hesitant to adopt these technologies, which in turn causes these technologies to be pretty expensive when they break into the market. There's an example. There's this one system that uh, one of the largest providers of self-storage doors and dividers provides, which allows all units in your facility to be controlled with a phone app. Right now, it's a little cost prohibitive because it costs about 300 to 350, 400 bucks a unit to install that. But over time, as more investors adopt that technology and there's a scale associated with the vendor, we're going to start seeing those prices drop, right? Another thing I really like in self-storage versus multifamily is that it has a very high sticky factor. So what I mean by sticky factor is, say I have a $150 unit. I can increase the rent on that $150 unit by $20 a month. And that'd be equivalent of a 13% increase to the bottom line. Now, a renter is not going to take the time and then not only the cost to move to a new facility to save that 20 bucks. You know, if we're talking a solid 10 by 15 unit, 150 square feet, that means you're going to have to rent a truck, pay for the gas, pay for the time off to move there and for maybe get some helpers and move them in and out if they're not able bodied. You know, you're looking at a 500 to a $600 cost to move to a facility over a $20 increase. It just makes more sense just to stay there for an extra two or three years and absorb that. Now, imagine if you tried to raise 
your monthly rent on one of your apartment units by 13%. Your tenants would immediately move out. I mean, when we were in the multifamily business and we were raising rents by 3% a year, we would get mass exodus from our units. Because one of the things about self-storage versus multifamily is that it's highly localized. For example, I'm here in Chicago. I'm in the near south side. Again, don't buy in Chicago. (laughs) Right. But what I can do is if if I didn't like where I was living, I'd, I'd be willing to move to the north side of Chicago or the northwest side of Chicago. I'm willing to go five, 10 miles away to get a good deal on an apartment. Right. Whereas with self-storage, usually what we find is 90% of our tenant base comes from a three-mile radius around our property. No one's going to drive 50 miles to go save an extra five, 10 bucks on a unit. Our tenants are much more sticky, if you will. And then the last thing that I really like about self-storage is the fact that you have multiple profit centers, not just rent, right? I have a list here of just some of the most common profit centers, ancillary profit centers that we add to self-storage. We can do car storage boat storage, RV storage. We can sell locks. We can sell renter's insurance and take a premium. You know, Maybe 60% of our renter's insurance premiums come right back to us as the operator who's selling and pushing that product. We can sell moving supplies, packaging supplies. We can do FedEx. We can have printing services. We can add cell towers on our land, billboards that we can rent out, truck rentals, private mailboxes, wine storage. The list goes on. And that way I'm not beholden to one way of making income. You know, Everyone that likes to talk about passive investments and talk about building a portfolio, they say, you know, it's all about multiple streams of income. Now, what if I can, I told you that you can make five or 10 different streams of income off of just one real estate asset. That's much better than buying multifamily and the medical office and industrial property and single family homes and Airbnbs. It's so it's just one of those things where the more and more I looked at it, I just, I couldn't not get into the space. How do you feel about like the growing competition right now, or as far as lots of people trying to get into the self-storage business right now? Or do you feel that that's extremely competitive or how do you feel? Yeah. I mean, I love it. So I break apart competition into two brackets. There's the REITs or the pseudo REITs. So these are the guys with the deep pockets and they're driving up rents in areas. I like when they come into an area near me, you know, I specialize in class B and class C properties and secondary and tertiary markets. So when a large REIT competitor moves into town, they immediately raise all the rents for the entire market. And all I have to do is I just piggyback off of their marketing. So I don't even have to pay for advertising. And I just undercut their price by about five bucks per unit. And now I'm getting free leads coming my way just because they, you know, someone's price sensitive and they're shopping. Now on the lower rung, you have the newer investors coming into the space. I don't really look at any one of these people as competitors. They all, I always look at everyone as a potential partner. You know, these are investors that they want to learn how to get into the business. Maybe they're buying their very first facility. Maybe they need help buying their very first facility and they end up calling me in the markets that I'm a heavy presence in and either bringing me deals, bringing me capital just to show them how to do the deals. Again, like I said before, self-storage is a hyper-fragmented market. So to get to the point of competition that you're seeing in multifamily, it's going to take the big REITs. They have to buy another 60, 70% of the market, which is not going to happen. It's just impossible to get to that many owners in such a short period of time. 
And we were lucky we were in self-storage in 2020 and not more scaled up in our retail line of business. We got through it. A lot of our tenants suffered. Thankfully, we kept everybody except for one person. But self-storage did great during the pandemic and it continues to. And the REITs, our portfolio at the end of Q1 had record occupancy growth from Q1 of 2020 to this year. And self-storage really benefits from disruption events like a pandemic or a recession, whatever might happen, because people get displaced. They need places to keep their stuff. It's out of sight, out of mind. It hits their credit card every month. And it's been good to us in the downturn of 2020. And obviously, we're all coming out of it right now. Things are looking much better. And other operators are reporting the same results. We've had great occupancy growth and great revenue growth. So we're fortunate to be in an asset class that made it through as opposed to maybe hospitality or to a degree office and retail. Self-storage hung in there pretty well. Yeah, no, that's great. And you briefly mentioned like REITs. Well, how does something like this compete, you know, with a REIT? So deal flow has been one of our big challenges in 2021. And a lot of operators that are in real estate who have capital allocations who are maybe focused on hospitality, retail, other asset classes that got a little more beat up, still have money to put out. And now they're in the self-storage business. So if it's a widely marketed deal by a professional broker, there's a call for offers, we can almost never compete because we're trying to blend current yield with capital appreciation at the same time. So we want to distribute cash flow, but we also want upside. A lot of folks out there are only looking for yield. They want to clip an eight during the life of the deal, then sell it for a break-even, and that's their requirement. Others don't care about cash flow. They're banking on appreciation and cap rate compression, and we're kind of trying to achieve both. So deal flow has been a challenge. If it's a class A, multi-story, climate-controlled deal in a primary market, we can't compete. We can't come close to the REITs. So public storage, extra space, cube smart, they're very aggressive right now. Most of our deals are in secondary and tertiary markets, which are very overused words these days because we're all doing deals in those markets. But we found those markets are a good blend of capital preservation, yield, and appreciation. We've also found that the REITs aren't as competitive there. They're not as active in those markets. Places like Pensacola, Florida, suburban Charlotte, suburban Memphis, Tennessee, Columbus, Ohio, Detroit, Grand Rapids, markets like that, which we're already in, we're not seeing as much recompetition in. So we try to fly below their radar. And if we're going toe-to-toe with them, we can't get the deal. It's good to just know that too, right? Like who you're competing with and help think through what market you're in and what markets they're in. That's interesting. And maybe you could provide a little more light there too on just like picking the right location right? How are you picking those locations, you know, for the fund or not? Yeah. Self-storage is very local supply sensitive. So we track supply ratios in the one, three and five mile trade radius. Nationally, there's about seven square feet per capita self-storage across the U.S. Once you're getting into submarkets that are over 10 or 12, you start to see a decline in occupancy and revenues. And then under seven, under five and less, you start to see much more buoyant occupancies and more buoyant revenues and in place rates. So we try to focus in markets with balanced supply ratios and markets with a subjective and objective low risk of the introduction of new supply. That might be because zoning is not receptive to self-storage. The city is not receptive to self-storage. We also try to buy deals at or below replacement costs. So if a competitor does build a facility nearby, their asking rents need to be incrementally higher than our asking rents to achieve the same yield on cost. But supply is really one of the big risks right now in self-storage. And I think supply peaked for the most part in Q1 of 2020. There was a lot of new construction in 2019. So number one is supply. And then beyond that, just good nuts and bolts demographics and real estate. You don't want an oppressive tax regime. You don't want to be in a municipality or a state that has a declining population. You want density. You want rooftops, good land, good locations, just like any other real estate deal applies to self-storage. And one thing I meant to ask you earlier about funds, and you were talking about the challenge of deal flow right now. I mean, I think that's almost anyone in this business at the moment, right? Or just the challenge of finding deals, good deals, right? You want something you can move forward on. But what about 
Well, you know, in operating a fund specifically, you raise all the money, you have this money, any risk of not being able to deploy it, you know, right now with just the challenge of not having good deals? Yeah. The day that our capital raising and our deal flow is in sync is probably going to be never. It's always too much of one and not enough of the other. And then the overnight, the pendulum shifts. We get a deal under contract. We got to hit the gas on capital raising. So we try to raise our capital kind of incrementally as we make acquisitions. What we're not doing is going out and raising $30 million on January 1st and having it sit in the bank and then hoping to get it deployed. So we try to balance our capital calls with our purchases. It's tough to do. We've got investors who are about to sign documents, investors who have signed documents, maybe they can't fund on time and kind of everywhere in between. And figuring out that cadence is certainly a challenge. Yeah, no doubt about it. Well, I just think you just shine some more light there on, hey, we don't raise it all up front. We're not just opening it completely day one, right? And I think it's very smart. So how do you communicate that with investors to say, hey, we're, you know, it's closed temporarily or we're going to open it back up at a specific point? How do you do that? Well, one of the main reasons we don't get to capitalize out of the gates is we want to turn preferred return on when an investor funds or shortly thereafter. And obviously, if somebody funds the entire capital stack on day one, there's no income to pay preferred return accumulates. And that's not a good thing for them or for the fund. So we'll typically say, okay, we're raising $6 million in equity for our next acquisition. Now that capital stack is full, but our next acquisition thereafter is 35, 40 days later. We've got another $4 million in room. And so that's how we communicate kind of where folks are coming in and when. So why go into the underperforming buildings and self-storage? Why not, you know, multifamily or original self-storage? Or what is it about that niche? Well, I was a multifamily. I, I began a multifamily. My master's thesis was a 400 residential unit development on 50 acres. That was close to $100 million, if not exceeding $100 million in, in revenue. And so... You know, the first part of my career for the first, you know, 68 years was all in multifamily. And then after the crash, I also began buying distressed apartments. What we saw was that the cap rates were so compressed that it was very competitive and hard to get into that field. On the flip side, during the crash, self-storage was booming because it actually does better in a recessionary market because as people reduce the size of their housing units, they put things into storage rather than getting rid of them. And then also they're, they're looking to preserve. So self-storage historically has done better in a recessionary market than an expansion market. And so when I was first looking at self-storage, I, I was trying to find a distressed self-storage and I couldn't find one. And that's how I got into it. Now, the other side of it is comparatively, more money is made in the development process than in the repositioning process. So if self-storage is performing and you can only move it from, let's say, a nine cap to an eight cap, you're really not going to make that much margin there comparatively to the, the original class, what's called first generation or class C operations. What we're dealing with is third generation or class A, which is all environmentally controlled urban settings where you're driving into the building, the garage door comes down and you're unloading your car in the building. And then you use a cart to distribute your goods into your locker. So it's an entirely different model than the original self-storage operations. Wow. So you drive your vehicle in the building and unload. That's interesting. Tell me about the risks that maybe an investor would be worried about in a type of asset like this. Well, every real estate has risks, right? Sure, so everyone. The thing that we like about self-storage is I don't have to worry about color selections. You know, Henry Ford was great with his quote that, you know, my buyers can have any color they want as long as it's black. You know, for us, our clients can have any color self-storage unit that they want as long as it's white. The thing that they get to choose is what size, right? So we eliminated the risk in terms of the finickiness of a buyer in terms of like liking brass or chrome 
or gold or any of those sorts of things. I mean, when we look at self-storage, it's apartments without toilets. And so we've whittled this thing down to the most economic basic unit that we could possibly do. The biggest hurdle within self-storage is not the market. It is how much competition you have. And so what we look for is when we go into areas, we're, we're studying a three and five mile radius as to how much competition is in the marketplace. And we can monetize that. We can analyze that in terms of what is the amount of self-storage in relationship to how many people. And if we begin hitting our approach in a mark, then that means that our, our rates are going to come down, our lead times are going to expand and all those sorts of things. So we like to go into markets that have a heavy demand and not a whole lot of supply. So that's how we, we buffer against you know, competition. What are some big mistakes you would say, you know, somebody starting to try to do do what you're doing would make as far I mean, I can just imagine looking at this old building trying to assess, can we make a self-storage building out of this? I mean, we were asked to look at one building that a person was evaluating in Cincinnati and they thought an old parking garage was going to make for a good building. Well, in a parking garage, a lot of the floors are ramped so that, you know, you can get from one level to the next. Um, the size of the elevator was small. The zoning wasn't there. And so when you looked at each of these factors and the column layout, it made it very difficult. It made it hard to put self-storage in there and overly costly. So we actually discourage the person from going into that marketplace. The other one is if you don't pay attention to the level of competition. You know, we see people wanting to do this and the metric is... How many square feet of lockers per capita? And this one woman who we were talking with, she's like, I own six acres. I'm going to make my, my the property in self-storage. It's going to boom. And I asked her how much other competition was around her. She goes, oh, there's not that much. You know, there's no other self-storage facilities around me. And I just did a quick Google search and there's like 18 other facilities. And where market tends to hit supply or supply equals demand is around seven. And her facility was, her location was already above nine without her adding a single square foot. So I was like, whatever you do, do not put self-storage and it would be the absolute worst thing you could possibly do. Thank you for being with us again today. I hope that you have learned a lot from the show. Don't forget to like and subscribe I hope you're telling your friends about the Real Estate Syndication Show and how they can also build wealth in real estate. You can also go to lifebridgecapital.com and start investing today. 